Chapter One of Why Is the Negro Lynched? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. Why is the Negro Lynched? By Frederick Douglass. Chapter One The Afro American People Indicted on a New Charge. Introductory. The writers claim to be heard. I propose to give you a colored man's view of the so-called Negro problem. We have had the southern white man's view of this subject at large in the press, in the pulpit, and on the platform. He has spoken in the pride of his power and to willing ears. Colored by his peculiar environments, his version has been presented with abundant repetition, with startling emphasis, and with every advantage to his side of the question. We have also had the northern white man's view of the subject, tempered by his distance from the scene, and by his different, if not his higher, civilization. This quality and quantity of evidence may be considered by some men as all-sufficient upon which to found an intelligent judgment of the whole matter in controversy, and therefore it may be thought my testimony is not needed. But experience has taught us that it is sometimes wise and necessary to have more than two witnesses to bring out the whole truth. Especially is this the case where one of such witnesses has a powerful motive for suppressing or distorting the facts, as in this case. I therefore insist upon my right to take the witness-stand and give my version of this southern question, and though it shall widely differ from that of both the North and South, I shall submit the same to the candid judgment of all who hear me in full confidence that it will be received as true by honest men and women of both sections of this republic. There is one thing, however, in which I think we must all agree at the start. It is that this so-called but miscalled Negro problem is one of the most important and urgent subjects that can now engage public attention. Its solution is, and ought to be, the serious business of the best American wisdom and statesmanship for it involves the honor or dishonor, the glory or shame, the happiness or misery of the whole American people. It not only touches the good name and fame of the Republic, but its highest moral welfare and its permanent safety. The evil with which it confronts us is coupled with a peril at once great and increasing, and one which should be removed, if it can be, without delay. Epidemic of Mob Law the presence of eight millions of people in any section of this country, constituting an aggrieved class, smarting under terrible wrongs, denied the exercise of the commonest rights of humanity, and regarded by the ruling class of that section as outside of the government, outside of the law, outside of society, having nothing in common with the people with whom they live, the sport of mob violence and murder, is not only a disgrace and a scandal to that particular section, but to menace to the peace and security of the whole country. There is, as we all know, a perfect epidemic of mob law and persecution now prevailing at the South, and the indications of a speedy end are not hopeful. Great and terrible as have been its ravages in the past, and now seems to be increasing, not only in the number of its victims, but in its frantic rage and savage extravagance. Lawless vengeance is beginning to be visited upon white men as well as black, our newspapers are daily disfigured by its ghastly horrors. It is no longer local but national, no longer confined to the South but has invaded the North. The contagion is spreading, 
extending and overleaping geographical lines and state boundaries, and if permitted to go on, threatens to destroy all respect for law and order, not only in the South, but in all parts of our common country, North as well as South. For certain it is that crime, allowed to go unpunished, unresisted, and unarrested, will breed crime. When the poison of anarchy is once in the air, like the pestilence that walketh in darkness, the winds of heaven will take it up and favor its diffusion. Though it may strike down the weak today, it will strike down the strong tomorrow. Not a breeze comes to us from the late rebellious states that is not tainted and freighted with negro blood. In its thirst for blood and its rage for vengeance, the mob has blindly, boldly, and defiantly supplanted sheriffs, constables, and police. It has assumed all the functions of civil authority. It laughs at legal processes, courts, and juries, and its red-handed murderers range abroad unchecked and unchallenged by law or by public opinion. If the mob is in pursuit of Negroes who happen to be accused of crime, innocent or guilty, prison walls and iron bars afford no protection. Jail doors are battered down in the presence of unresisting jailers, and the accused, awaiting trial in the courts of law, are dragged out and hanged, shot, stabbed, or burned to death as the blind and irresponsible mob may elect. We claim to be a highly civilized and Christian country. I will not stop to deny this claim, yet I fearlessly affirm that there is nothing in the history of savages to surpass the blood-chilling horrors and fiendish excesses perpetrated against the colored people of this country by the so-called enlightened and Christian people of the South. It is commonly thought that only the lowest and most disgusting birds and beasts, such as buzzards, vultures, and hyenas, will gloat over and prey upon dead bodies. But the southern mob, in its rage, feeds its vengeance by shooting, stabbing, and burning their victims when they are dead. Now, what is the special charge by which this ferocity is justified, and by which mob law is excused and defended even by good men north and south? It is a charge of recent origin, a charge never brought before, a charge never heard of in the time of slavery or in any other time in our history. It is a charge of assaults by Negroes upon white women. This new charge, once fairly started on the wings of rumor, no matter by whom or in what manner originated, whether well or ill-founded, whether true or false, is certain to raise a mob and to subject the accused to immediate torture and death. It is nothing that there may be a mistake in his case as to identity. It is nothing that the victim pleads not guilty. It is nothing that the accused is of fair reputation and his accuser is of an abandoned character. It is nothing that the majesty of the law is defied and insulted. No time is allowed for defense or explanation. He is bound with cords, hurried off amid the frantic yells and curses of the mob to the scaffold, and there, under its ghastly shadow, he is tortured, till by pain or promises he is made to think that he can possibly gain time or save his life by confession. Confesses, and then, whether guilty or innocent, he is shot, hanged, stabbed, or burned to death amid the wild shouts of the mob. When the will of the mob is accomplished, when its thirst for blood has been quenched, when its victim is speechless, silent, and dead, his mobocratic accusers and murderers, of course, have the ear of the world all to themselves, and the world, hearing only the testimony of the mob, generally approves its verdict. Such, then, is the state of Southern law and civilization at this moment, in relation to the colored citizens of that section of our country. Though the picture is dark and terrible, I venture to affirm that no man, north or south, can successfully deny its essential truth. Attitude of Upper Classes 
Now the question arises, and it is important to know how this state of affairs is viewed by the better classes of the southern states. I will tell you, and I venture to say in advance, if our hearts were not already hardened by familiarity with crimes against the Negro, we should be shocked and astonished not only by these mobocratic crimes, but by the attitude of the better classes of the southern people and their lawmakers towards the perpetrators of them. With a few noble exceptions, just enough to prove the rule, the upper classes of the South seem to be in full sympathy with the mob and its deeds. There are but few earnest words ever uttered against either. Press, platform, and pulpit are generally either silent or they openly apologize for the mob and its deeds. The mobocratic murderers are not only permitted to go free, untried and unpunished, but are lauded and applauded as honorable men and good citizens, the high-minded guardians of southern virtue. If lynch law is in any case condemned by them, it is only condemned in one breath and excused in another. The great trouble with the Negro in the South is that all presumptions are against him. A white man has but to blacken his face and commit a crime to have some Negro lynched in his stead. An abandoned woman has only to start a cry, true or false, that she has been insulted by a black man to have him arrested and summarily murdered by the mob. Frightened and tortured by his captors, confused he may be into telling crooked stories about his whereabouts at the time when the crime is alleged to have been committed, and the death penalty is at once inflicted, though his story may be but the incoherency of ignorance, or the distraction caused by terror. In confirmation of what I have said, I have before me the utterances of some of the best people of the South, and also the testimony of one from the North, a lady of high character, from whom, considering her antecedents, we should have expected a more considerate, just, and humane utterance. In a late number of the Forum, Bishop Haygood, author of The Brother in Black, says that the most alarming fact is that execution by lynching has ceased to surprise us. The burning of a human being for any crime, it is thought, is a horror that does not occur outside of the southern states of the American Union. Yet unless assaults by Negroes come to an end, there will most probably be still further display of vengeance that will shock the world, and men who are just will consider the provocation. In an open letter addressed to me by ex-Governor Chamberlain, of South Carolina, published in the Charleston News and Courier, in reply to an article of mine on the subject of lynching, published in the North American Review, the ex-governor says, Your denunciation of the South on this point is directed exclusively, or nearly so, against the application of lynch law for the punishment of one crime. The existence, I suppose they might say the prevalence, of this crime at the South is undeniable, but I read your article in vain for any special denunciation of the crime itself. As you say, your people are lynched, tortured, and burned, for assault on white women. As you value your own good fame and safety as a race, stamp out the infamous crime. And now comes the sweet voice of a northern woman, Miss Frances Willard, of the WCTU, distinguished among her sisters for benevolence and Christian charity. She speaks in the same bitter tone and hurls against us the same blasting accusation. She says in a letter now before me, I pity the southerners. The problem in their hands is immeasurable. The colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. The safety of women, of childhood, of the home, is menaced in a thousand localities at this moment, so that men dare not go beyond the sight of their own roof-tree. Such, then, is the crushing indictment drawn up against the southern negroes, drawn up, too, by persons who are perhaps the fairest and most humane of the negroes' accusers. Yet even they paint him as a moral monster, ferociously invading the sacred rights of women and endangering the homes of the whites. INCRIMINATION OF THE WHOLE RACE 
Now, I hold, no less than his accusers, that the crime alleged against the Negro is the most revolting which men can commit. It is a crime that awakens the intensest abhorrence and tempts mankind to kill the criminal on first sight. But this charge thus brought against the Negro, and is constantly reiterated by his enemies, is plainly enough not merely a charge against the individual culprit, as would be the case with an individual of any other race, but it is in large measure a charge constructively against the colored people as such. It throws over every man of color a mantle of odium, and sets upon him a mark of popular hate, more distressing than the mark set upon the first murderer. It points the negro out as an object of suspicion, avoidance, and hate. It is in this form of the charge that you and I and all of us are required to meet it and refute it, if that can be done. In the opinion of some of us, it were well to say nothing about it, that the least said about it the better. They would have us suffer quietly under the odium in silence. In this I do not concur. Taking this charge in its broad and comprehensive sense, the sense in which it is presented and is now stated, it strikes at the whole colored race, and therefore, as a colored man, I am bound to meet it. I am grateful for the opportunity now afforded me to meet it, for I believe it can be met and met successfully. I hold that a people too spiritless to defend themselves against unjust imputations are not worth defending, and are not worthy to defend anything else. End of chapter 1